Our Father who art in heaven, today we remember those men and women who have died in service to our country. We pause to reflect on the lives sacrificed while protecting our freedoms. We confess that most days we are oblivious to the price paid by men and women in uniform, and yet we live every day in the freedom they laid down their lives to give us. So today, we recall the words of Jesus when he said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And let us not forget that each life lost represents other lives that are left to pick up the pieces. We lift up widows and widowers, brothers and sisters, parents and children of the service men and women who fought valiantly for our country. We ask for your peace and comfort to never leave them. God, we thank you for the lives of these men and women. May their memory and their service never be forgotten. Amen. So we are continuing this series that we started last Sunday with the Gospel of John. And this is going to be a summer-long series for us. We're going to be going chapter by chapter throughout uh, again, the, the most of the gospel, we're going to make our all the way up to the, to the crucifixion um, and that, and, and then we're going to jump into our fall as we get that, but we're going to be going chapter by chapter through the gospel of John. And so throughout summer, we know there's lots of different things going on, and this summer is going to look different than many other summers do, just as we work through phasing everything back in and hopefully getting back to normal before fall. But with that is if you're going to be gone, you're going to be camping or off on a trip or or just whatever it might be, um, you know what's coming. We're literally going chapter by chapter through the entire Gospel of John. And so I encourage you, if you're not here with us a week, you can follow along, read the scriptures yourself to prep, even if you are going to be here. And, and yet you can always uh, follow us online. And, and, and as we uh, continue to, to study just the basics of our faith, the life of Jesus. And we see in our scriptures, we have four different versions of the, of the Gospels, right? We have four Gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and each one is written from a little bit different perspective, a little bit different uh, flavor or style. Um, but yet we saw last week as we opened up this, this, this study of the gospel, and we see again gospel, the literary form of gospel is the story of Jesus. Right? And we see all four versions are, are about Jesus and about his life and, and the, the, the lessons and the parables and the miracles and all that Jesus did, his interaction with his disciples and those around him. And we are going to study him in his life, and yet the, the, the literal translation of gospel is good news, right? And there's no better news than about the story of Jesus. And yet, as we see that, though, is that the gospels are not all the same. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels, and they are very similar. They, they tell a lot of similar stories. They come from a similar perspective. And yet John's gospel, again, gives us a unique view of Jesus. John's gospel is written in a very different style than the other three. John writes um, in the first person perspective. It's written a lot more in a narrative style. And John, again, some of it comes from who he was and, and his perspective. He was one of, one of the disciples. He's one of Jesus's inner three disciples. John was in, in situations. He heard conversations that other people didn't hear. And he knew Jesus on a more 
intimate, closer level than a lot of the other disciples did, as well as as many others, again, that Jesus interacted with. And so from John's perspective, is we get a very key eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. Again, John gives us a lot more details about conversations, about emotions, and about different situations that he shared with Jesus that we don't get from some of the other gospel writers. In fact, when we look at the style of of the writing in John's gospel, um, as compared to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written more like a history book. They just give us times and events and situations where John writes more like a love letter. And we get a lot more of that emotion behind what John writes in these stories. Now, John writes it in the first person, but he never names himself in the gospel. And there's a few times, especially towards the end of the gospel, where where we see he has to kind of identify himself in the story, but he never uses his own name, and he doesn't use any first-person pronouns like I. But what he does is he, he gives himself this title of the disciple Jesus loved. Again, this title just gives us this perspective of how close John was to Jesus. And, and, but yet, we do see in the gospel, as we saw last week, that, that there is a John that is named. But anytime we see the name John in John's gospel, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about a different John, John the Baptist. And we saw that last week. We'll see that kind of in that interaction through the next couple chapters. Um, but anytime you see the name John, it is not John addressing himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. Again, as we see, there's lots of things that John includes into his gospel. He's very clear about his purpose. Right? The reason that he wrote it was, was to make sure to fill in any holes that might be there in any other gospels or stories or understandings of Jesus. But his purpose was to, be, to clear up any misunderstanding or doubt and to say that you, after reading this story of his life, is without a doubt you know that Jesus was the Messiah. Right, that he was the son of God and that he came to save us and that we need to, again, have him a part of our life, that he is our Lord and our Savior. And it, it's interesting also to notice what John doesn't put in his gospel. Okay, not only what he does say, but also what he doesn't say. And again, his, his gospel is very simple, a lot less events than what are in the synoptic ones. But yet everything that he does tell us about is very given for a very specific purpose and a reason to, again, to create that undoubtable, no doubt, right, that we're going to follow with that question. And so as we see every event that we look at, we need to look with fresh eyes and, and ask that question, why did John choose this story, right, to put into his gospel? Now, as we get into John chapter 2 today, um, there are two very famous events of Jesus' life in this one chapter. Okay, and those two events is the, 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 his first public miracle, which is when he changes water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Okay, and then the second event in chapter 2 is when he clears the temple. Okay, now, we see these two events. These are two very popular events, ones that, that kind of everybody knows about Jesus. But yet, I, I want to challenge us this morning as we open up God's Word and as we read these stories, I want to challenge all of us to look at these familiar stories with fresh eyes. Okay, and as we look at them with fresh eyes this morning, and, and kind of as we know the backstory, kind of why, and we got to ask that question, why would John include these stories? Okay, and there's a couple of questions that I want to just, are going to frame our study this morning. The first one is, as we read these stories, we need to ask, who were these supposed to benefit? 
Okay, who do these stories benefit? Again, we'll see that. We'll kind of get that out of the stories that we go through. But again, what was their purpose? Because remember, Jesus, as we learned last week, has not really gone public with his ministry yet. In fact, for these first three chapters, Jesus um, tries to deflect the spotlight. He, he, he tries to focus on other people and other situations. We saw last week, right, Jesus throws the spotlight onto John the Baptist. Right, that Jesus is not gone public yet, and yet here we have this, this miracle and this very public, two very public interactions with Jesus. So again, who was the real benef- benefactor of these situations? And because it, it wasn't Jesus, right? He was not trying to just gain popularity by these events. Okay, the other question I want to uh, just kind of throw out today to kind of frame our study is to, to make note of what different reactions we see to Jesus in both of these stories. Okay, we see several different reactions to Jesus. And again, we're going to kind of keep that in mind as we read these stories. So we're going to jump into this first story, uh, that, which is the Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, and and the, the text for this story is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bible with you, please open with me to John chapter 2. You don't have your own Bible with you. There are Bibles provided for you in the seats that you're welcome to use. You can grab one of those and open up to John chapter 2. If you're worshiping with us online, just grab your Bible or pull up your phone, open up to John chapter 2. We're going to read the story of turning water into wine, starting at verse 1. So John 2, verse 1. It says, The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And we're going to pause there as this, this first miracle kind of is wrapped up. And, and we see here, again, this, this famous miracle of Jesus, right? Turning water into wine. Okay, the, the, the interesting thing about this is the context of this miracle, right? It is done at a wedding celebration. Hey, but before we jump into this miracle, I just want to first just, just throw it out there, right? Because this is, is one of those passages that is used oftentimes when Christians try to decide or debate whether we can drink alcohol or not. Okay, and this, this is one. Now to say, I just want to say, this miracle really is not about alcohol at all. Okay, now this, um, the, the point we're going to dive into, we're going to look at it, but it's not about, now, again, that's a different message for a different time, a different conversation. Right, if you want to have that, we can, you, we can talk about that, but we're not going to do that today. This is not about alcohol, okay? and that's really not the point of the miracle. 
They, but the, the miracle, there is some huge points to this miracle. Okay, first off is to say is, is that we see this interesting exchange between Jesus and his mother. They know, again, Jesus and his mom and all of his family, as well as the disciples that he just kind of all gathered in chapter one, like they all show up. They're all just guests at this wedding. Okay, we don't know who was getting married. We don't, know any, we don't get any of those details. We just know that they're simply just attending. Okay, and then, though, we see it through their um, just tradition and the way that they would celebrate, right, is, is they, 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 ran, they run out of wine, right? And this is, this is a problem, right, in this wedding celebration. Now, notice, again, this problem initially has nothing to do with Jesus or Mary, right? And yet... She comes to Jesus, and she comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, they've got this problem. Right now, again, I don't know if you read it into it, but even kind of the way I read it is I sense a little bit of a sarcastic tone from Jesus back towards Mary. Right again, she, she comes to him and she's like, hey, Jesus, they have no more wine. And he's like, dear woman, that is not our problem. Right? Why are you involving me in this? Right? You, you can kind of sense this, and this is part of this this is one of the times in the gospel when we see this, where we see this really human side of Jesus, right? As well as the 100% divine side of Jesus come out in different stories. And this is one of those times that I feel like we see the human side of Jesus, right? You can almost feel the eye roll, you know, coming from Jesus as he interacts with his mom. Really, mom? Why are you dragging me into this? Right? This is not my problem. I, I'm not trying to draw attention to myself, mom. Why are you calling me out? Right? And yet, even with this interaction with Mary, right, yet she, she kind of blows him off, right? And she pushes him into the situation. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt that from your mom, but I felt that from my mom at different times. When your mom pushes you into stuff that you want nothing to do with. Again, maybe as a mom, you've been on the other side and you've pushed your kids. I don't know, you know, but, but again, we get the, the, the situation that sets this up, right? But what Mary understands, what Mary gets, right, that we're about to see, and she already fully understands about Jesus. Now, obviously, she knows Jesus in a way that nobody else does, right? She's the only person, right, ultimately on the face of this planet that really knows where Jesus came from and what he's capable of. Right, here we see her, this interaction, and then she knows and understands right, that Jesus' words carry authority. Right, and she, she tells everybody this. By, by the way, after she kind of pushes Jesus off from this kind of interesting interaction, then what does she do? She turns to the servants, and what does she tell them? Right, she tells them, do whatever he tells you to do. Because she fully understands that Jesus' words carry authority. Now, John has set us up for this lesson with chapter 1. Right? How does he start off the gospel? He says, the word became flesh. Right? He, he describes Jesus as the word. And, and John is setting us up for to know that, that Jesus' words carry authority. That when Jesus talks... We need to listen. Right? And yet we see that, that here in this interaction, in this, this whole miracle that Jesus literally 
doesn't do anything. All he does is speak. He doesn't touch anybody, right? He doesn't physically do anything other than speak. Again, Mary testifies to how much authority Jesus' words have, right? Because she knows that that Jesus' words need to be followed up with action. That's exactly what she tells them in verse 5, right? And his mother tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Right, and Mary paints Jesus in a corner, right? As he's kind of, kind of begging her to be like, Mom, don't involve me in this. And she turns, he's like, just do whatever he tells you. And so now Jesus is stuck. And so what does Jesus do? He, he tells the servants, right, to go and fill it up. But, but before he does that, though, what, again, what's Jesus' interaction or, or um, you know, reaction to his mom in the midst of this, right? What does he tell her? He tells her, my time has not yet come. Okay, now when we see this response to Mary in this interaction, okay, notice those words are red. Right? Those are the words of Jesus. And he's, he's telling her, my time has not yet come. Right? He's, he's telling her, he's like, Mom, I don't want the attention. Right? I, I'm, I'm trying to not draw a whole big crowd here. And yet you're pushing me into this. Now, this phrase is very significant because we see this phrase um, said by Jesus several times throughout the gospel. This is the first time we see that phrase, and we're going to see it much more throughout the summer as we study through chapter to chapter. And in fact, that phrase continues to be said, as, as, and every time it is said, it ratchets, ratchets up the tension that is coming between Jesus and the religious leaders and saying, my time has not yet come. And every time it's said, right, the tension increases to where it finally culminates on the cross. Okay, and John is building this tension within the whole narrative of the gospel every time we see that phrase. And so again, Jesus throws this out, but yet Mary pushes him into it. And then we see Jesus engages, right? And, And he tells them to go fill up the jars to fill them full of water, and then he does this miracle. And, and again, once again, this miracle, again, is not about alcohol, but it is about God's power. It is about God's power. And also, just, again, the details of the alcohol that John tells us here, again, it's not actually about the alcohol, but it does show us something about the character of God. Right, which is exactly what he told us in chapter one, right? Is that the word he puts on flesh and everything that Jesus does tells us something about the character of the divine. And again, what do we learn about our God from this experience? We learn that he is a God of excellence. Right, that he is all powerful, but yet that power is going to be used to do the best of the best. That God doesn't do anything halfway. Right? If God does it, it's going to be done to the nth degree. That God is not only all-powerful, but God is a God of excellence. Right? We we see this, you know, kind of played out here in in this this wedding scenario. Right? In verses 9 and 10, again, it literally tells us, Right? The, again, the master of ceremonies, he gets the water that is now wine. Right, He takes it over to the bridegroom after he tastes it. And he says, hey, you, you haven't done it the way that everybody else does it. 
It's like the normal kind of, you know, procedure for this wedding, right? Is the bridegroom plans this out, kind of sets it all up. And then we have this master ceremonies guy that like, that, that, you know, plays out. He's kind of the, the, the producer of the, of the party, right? He's the wedding planner, right? He, he just, he just executes everything that's been set up. And the truth is the bridegroom fails in his planning. Right, because, and that's exactly what the master ceremony says. He's like, hey, the normal procedure, right, is like you get out the best wine, right, at the first, you make the best first impression, and then you give them a bunch of cheap wine at the end, right, just to kind of carry you through. But, but and here he's like, this, now you've, like, you've kept the best wine until now. Like, and, and again, you see the master ceremony is kind of like, why would you do that? But the truth is that the bridegroom actually failed in his job because he didn't have enough wine to carry him through. And yet God steps in, right, with his divine power and, and provides not only to get him through the situation, but again, he doesn't just bring out mediocre wine, right, but the very best wine. Again, this is, this is a, a vivid illustration, right, a, a foreshadowing of why the Messiah was sent, Again, this, this illustration of, of the bridegroom and, and this wedding is used all throughout Scripture to describe the relationship that God desires to have with us. Right? That we, again, are the bride of Christ, that, that Christ is the bridegroom, right? That, that our relationship with God is, is one that is, that is so close, so intimate in our lives that we, we know each other so well that the only earthly relationship that even comes close to the one that God wants with us is the marriage relationship. Right? And we see this, this example, right, all throughout Scripture. And yet here we see that the bridegroom here in this had failed. But yet Christ, as our bridegroom, steps in to pick up where we fall short. Right? And that was the mission of the Messiah Right, and John is foreshadowing here about this new covenant that the Messiah is, is going to usher in through his life and his death and his resurrection. Right, because the old covenant had fallen short. It had failed in saving us. And yet the bridegroom steps in. Right, Christ, the Messiah, steps in, not with just to get us by, but he steps in with the perfect excellent sacrifice. Right? And here we see this. Again, it's not just to get by. Right? It is the best we could ever get. Yeah, the bridegroom is responsible for the wine, just as the Messiah is responsible to usher in the new covenant. Right? And we are the church, the bride of Christ. Right, and we become, again, the benefactor of the bridegroom. Again, we see and we think about the, the, the thick foreshadowing, the, the spiritual undertones of this miracle, right? what it tells us about the character of God. Then we see verse 11. Okay? And verse 11 shows us the real purpose of the miracle. Remember this question, right? Who's, who does this benefit? Okay, verse 11, it says, This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Who benefited 
by this miracle. Obviously, everybody at the wedding benefited because they got to drink really good wine, right? But who was the real benefactor of this miracle? Well, it was the disciples. Again, Jesus was not public yet, right? But yet, what was the result of this miracle? It says these disciples, right? These guys that Jesus grabs, we saw last week in chapter one, right? He told him, he's like, hey, if you think that was great, just I'm going to blow your mind. Right, there's some crazy things ahead. And now here's, the, again, the first time that he reveals his glory to the, even to his disciples and shows them even a glimpse of what he's really capable of. Right, and what was the result of this miracle? Right, it says, and they believed in him. Right, this was when they were, the first time they were reassured, they're like, hey, I've gone all in with this Jesus guy, and that was the best decision I could have ever made. Right? And he, again, benefited them through this miracle. And here we see this phrase, miraculous sign, okay, that is used. And, and again, that's, that's the word that's used in verse 11. And, and John uses this to show us that there is a way bigger purpose than just bailing out the bridegroom. Okay, there's a way, there's all kinds of symbolism and underpinning reasons why Jesus did this miracle. It's not just about the miracle itself, but, but it's about the way bigger picture that it foreshadows. Not only about why the Messiah came, but also about the belief of the disciples and the commitment of them. Again, John always uses this phrase because everything that John includes has a deeper purpose. Again, what... And what reactions to Jesus do we see in this first miracle? Right, we see reactions from many other people. We see from Mary, right, who just pushes Jesus into it. We see uh, all of the servants, right, who, who obeyed and, and did complete obedience for what Jesus told them to do. And yet ultimately we see here the, the reaction of the disciples, which was they at this moment went all in with Jesus. Right, and then we move on to the next event in the chapter, and that is in verses 13, for the verses 13 through 22, which is where Jesus closed the temple. So we're going to pick up the story here, John 2, picking up at verse 13. It says, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. And in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. And he also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made... Uh, made a whip from some ropes, and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, and changes coins over the floor, and turned over the tables. And then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had 
gives me a pause here as this, this story kind of concludes, right, with kind of the disciples' thoughts and reactions. Uh, again, what, what do we learn from the clearing of the temple? Right? Why did John include this, especially in chapter 2, before he goes public? Because this was a very public act of Jesus. Right? He shows up in Jerusalem, and, and he literally makes a whip and, and you know, clears people out of the outer courts of the temple. Again, what, what does this event show us? Well, it, again, it once again shows us this, this true attribute of the heart of God. Okay, what do we learn about God from Jesus' actions here? Well, we learn that the heart of God is to save everyone, not just his chosen people. Again, th- this temple was built originally by Solomon, okay, King David's son. Okay, David kind of chose the site for it, and he kind of set up, made the plans, and then Solomon carried it out and built it. And the reason for building the temple was to have a permanent place for God to dwell, for his presence to live. Right Up to this point, until this temple was built, right, God's presence lived in the tabernacle, which was built by Moses and Aaron right, while they wandered. Okay, as they carried the Ark of the Covenant, and they, it was this, this tent that they took, and it, known as the tabernacle. Right? And, and it was designed with layers. Right? There was these outer courts, and then these, these inner layers, and then the Holy of Holies was the center of the tabernacle, and also the center of the temple, which was where God's presence lived. Okay, now in these layers, again, it was designed, right, that, that for, for anybody to go into the, to these inner layers, they had to go through cleansing, and it was certain people, and only, and again, if, if anybody went into God's presence, and they hadn't gone through the right rituals, and they're cleansing all these things, that they would literally die, because they could not be in God's presence. Okay, but all of these outer layers, the point of these outer layers was that anyone could get close to God, and interact, and worship, and pray. Okay, and these outer courts of the temple were, were where anybody could come, whether they were Jews, or Hebrews, or Gentiles. They were allowed in this outer court area. Now, this last January, I went to the Holy Land, and, and again, I saw this, the, the temple area, and this is a picture of the Temple Mount. Okay, and, and as we look at this, this picture, this, this outside wall right here, this is the boundary of the temple. Okay, again, outside of this, there's stairs right here, which these are the, the teaching steps. That's where, where everybody would enter. And then this whole area right inside the walls, this is the area that Jesus cleared out. Okay, because that area, again, everybody was allowed to go, even Gentiles. Now, this is where all of these people had set up shop, right? And they were exchanging money. They were selling animals for sacrifice. They were doing all of these things. And again, there's this clear boundary that was supposed to be kept clear, right? This, this it's holy ground. It's supposed to be for worship, and yet they had made it into a marketplace. Now, what made Jesus so upset about this? Again, these temple courts was the only area of the temple that anyone was allowed to go into to pray and to worship. Again, what does Jesus tell them? What made him so upset about this? We see in verse 16, Jesus says, he goes over to the, these people who were selling doves, and he told them, get, the thing, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Again, Jesus was not upset about what they were doing. Okay, what they were doing was not a problem. People would, would travel from all over the world to come to the temple to worship, and they would come, they would have to buy their animals for sacrifice because they couldn't travel with them. 
right? They would have to exchange their money in order to pay the temple tax and to get in and all those sorts of things. There was nothing wrong with what they were doing. Okay, what Jesus was so upset about was where they were doing it. Because they had crossed a, a very clear and specific boundary that God had set up. Right, God had set this boundary to say, don't go through here. Don't, don't do business here, right? Because this is holy ground. This is where we come to worship. This is where everyone can come to worship. And yet, how did they end up there? How did they end up doing business in these, inner, or these outer courts of the temple? Well, the, the cause of it was likely just good business practice. Right? These, these people, that's how they made their living, right? Was exchanging money and selling these animals for sacrifice. And, and they were probably there just simply out of convenience for people when they got there. Right? Is it, they're, they're excited to be in the city. They kind of rush into the temple and like, oh, I forgot to exchange my money. Oh, I forgot to buy my sacrifice. Oh, they're right here. I can just do it right here. Right? This was literally just a good business practice. They were just gaining an edge on their competition. It was just simple convenience. But yet, even though they didn't mean to offend God in, in their, their business practices, they had inadvertently upset God about where they were doing business. And you know, we've all done this before, right? We, we've accidentally offended somebody. Right? And that's exactly what had happened here with these, with these merchants. Right? Their intention was not to offend God right? or to cross a clear boundary. They were just simply doing good business, and they just didn't notice. Right? But also, when they crossed that boundary, nobody enforced the boundary line either. Again, they didn't mean to offend, but they yet, Jesus comes and becomes the voice of God in saying, like, you have crossed a boundary. And all Jesus did here was reinforce a clear boundary that God had already set. Now, we understand that in our lives, it's, we just tend to kind of drift into situations. Okay, one of the things that I've learned about people in my, over my years of ministry, right, and just about our world and the way that our world works, is that people do what they can get away with. Okay, people do what they can get away with. And this is no more true than, than if you're a parent. You see this, right? Like, our kids do whatever we allow them to do. Right? And if you give them an inch, they will go a, an inch farther. Right? The kids do, we all do, whatever we can get away with. Okay? And yet, we have these clear boundaries. Now, again, we know this as a parent. We know this if you have a pet. The same is true with your pets. Right? If you're training a new pet. Right? Is you have to give clear boundaries. Okay? Maybe you know in my house, we have a puppy in my house right now. Okay, this is a picture of our puppy. Okay, we have a black lab puppy. Okay, this is my daughter. Okay, they're, they're sitting there. Now, the, the thing about puppies, again, will, will push you, right? And unless you give clear boundaries, right? And then again, they'll just try to do whatever they can get away with, right? They think as we brought in our dog we had before we got this puppy, she was a great dog, an older dog, very calm. But like we had, she was not allowed on the couch, Okay, and like, we, again, we'd sit on the couch, she'd stay on the floor, it just wasn't an issue, she's trained really well. 
Right? And, and so we, we bring this puppy home, and that was our stare. We're like, yep, just the dogs aren't allowed on the couch. And, but, but yet, you know, the cute little cuddly puppy, right, is getting to pick up. We, we like cuddle it on the couch. And, you know, we, we catch the kids with the puppy on the couch every once in a while, right? Like, you know, before we know it, right, the puppy's up on the couch all the time. And then she got big enough where she could get on the couch herself, right? Well, guess what? She, she pushed the boundary, right, because she had been on the couch when she was little and cuddly, Right? And she got bigger, and, and you know, guess where she spends a lot of her time now? On the couch. And again, it's, we had this clear boundary, but yet we relaxed, right? We didn't enforce it. And she got used to being on the couch. In fact, she loves it on the couch. Right? Now, now, with that said, is, is we also, again, have this boundary, and, and we've, we've always had this with all of our dogs, is we don't let our dogs in our bed. Okay, and, and, and again, Lily was never in our bed. This Pepper, our new puppy, she, again, we've kept that boundary. She does not go in our bed. Now, she's tried, right? And she's big enough to get on there herself now, right? But again, we, we've enforced that boundary. Like, you're not on the bed. You got the couch. We'll give you the couch, right? But, but you're not coming on our bed. Right? But this is exactly what happens here, right? Is we do what we can get away with, right? And these merchants are just kind of pushed the line. And, and they, they had encroached into the temple, and Jesus gets upset with this, right? All Jesus does here is reiterate the clear boundary line that God had already drawn. And yet, he gets instant pushback from the Jewish leaders. Okay, why does he get such a strong reaction from them? Because they were the ones who were supposed to be keeping the temple and keeping it in line and and you know, collecting the temple tax and all these things. Like, they were given these boundaries from God, and it was their job to hold those boundaries, and they had not done it. And so when Jesus calls out these merchants, again, they were not the ones that were offended, right? It was the Jewish leaders that got offended because it was their job to protect the temple. But again, all Jesus does is call them out on the fact that they had become too lax in their job that God had given them to do. Again, Jesus' words here focus on a way bigger spiritual issue. It was not the obvious physical one. Because they had done the same thing that these merchants had done. right? They had kind of bent the rules and, and kind of made it to where they were benefiting from God's boundaries. Right? And they got offended when Jesus calls them out. Now, this is the first time in the gospel where we see, again, the, the, this term Jews, um, you know, called out. Okay? And, and we, we see, again, this, this tension that starts to rise here. But again, we also see that they have a very different reaction to Jesus than what we saw at the wedding. Right? The wedding was complete obedience. Everybody followed what Jesus did. You know, here, these Jews, right, what do they do? How do they react to Jesus? They come to Jesus, and they demand a miraculous sign. They say, give us a sign to prove you have the authority to kick people out of the temple. Right? They come to Jesus and says, Jesus, we will believe in you if you do this for us. Right? And they, they show a complete situational belief. Again, we see this attitude in our culture all the time today, don't we? I will believe in God if he gives me this miracle, right? Or if he gets me out of this situation. If God does this for me, then I will be all in for him. Right? And that's exactly the attitude, the reaction we see initially out of these Jewish leaders. But then how does Jesus respond to this 
this demand from them, right? Jesus in verse 19, he says, all right, then destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. He's like, that's the miracle I'll show you. Now, again, Jesus is describing the resurrection, right? But he's also claiming, right, that, that the Holy Spirit dwells within him. Right? Because as they're looking at this physical example of the temple, right, where God's presence lives, now Jesus is telling them there's a bigger spiritual thing going on here. Right? I'm the Messiah, the Holy Spirit lives within me, and, and so destroy this temple and I will rise again in three days. Again, they completely miss the point, but Jesus here is claiming 100% divinity. Right? And he is foreshadowing the resurrection. And he's telling them that this new covenant um, that he is going to usher in, right, that in this new covenant, the Spirit will no longer dwell on the Holy of Holies, but in the hearts of all believers. Because Jesus' death and resurrection will usher in the new covenant. This is what links these two stories together. Again, the foreshadowing of the new covenant. Jesus wasn't going public, but he was laying the foundation for what his earthly ministry was going to accomplish. And you notice it's the words of Jesus that these Jewish leaders reject. A complete opposite reaction that we saw at the wedding. They completely missed the point. And Jesus was wanting this new covenant. It was a deep spiritual issue, and yet they were stuck on the physical surroundings. They thought Jesus was talking about the building. Right? And he wasn't at all. Okay, we can't miss this point. This is one that we see happen, again, continuing on through the gospel. In fact, next week in chapter 3, we see this, this interaction with Nicodemus and talking about spiritual things and physical things. And Jesus kind of takes this into a whole deeper level next week in chapter 3. Okay, but, but once again, we see who is the real true benefactor of this scene. Okay, of this. It was not the Jewish leaders. It certainly wasn't those merchants that Jesus got all over. Okay, it was, it was the disciples. Because they once again saw that Jesus was coming to be serious. And okay, now here is, the, again, the conclusion of today is these last few verses of chapter 2. Okay, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, because of the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. No one needed to tell him what mankind is really like. Again, when you read these verses, right, these verses, a chance that these verses just send a shudder down your spine. Right, Jesus knows what I'm really like. Right, Jesus knows my heart, right? He knows he can't trust them because he knows what I'm really like. Right, and that that's, should be to us what it was, even as he cleared the temple to the Jews, right? It's it's a it's a he's calling us out. But yet these same verses can also be an incredibly huge encouragement, right? And that yeah, Jesus knows what I'm really like. And he doesn't trust me to, to be saved on my own, right? He provided a way for me to do it that wasn't relied on my power, it was on his. But and not only, again, depending on your reaction to Jesus will change how you react to those verses. Right? Because if you are in situational belief or if you even reject Jesus, those verses are very bad news. 
right? But if you receive Jesus in complete obedience, that is an encouragement. Saying, yes, Jesus picks up where I fall short. Thank you, Lord. Right, because he knows that I really am. Because we, as we realize that, that brings it then to the final thought for this morning, and that is this. Right, that we see three distinct responses to Jesus. Complete obedience, skepticism, and situational belief. So which response will you have to Jesus today? Lord God, we thank you that you are with us no matter what we face. God, whether it's an incredible miracle or being called out on a boundary that we've lacked on, Lord, you do it because you love us. Lord, you do it because you are a God that wants everyone to come to him and to rely on your power, Lord, to save us and to transform our lives and our hearts. God, we praise you that you're with us no matter what we face, whether it's a victory or a struggle. God, we know that you're with us. Lord, help us to be just like the disciples and to go all in with you no matter what we face. God, we thank you that we benefit, Lord, from everything that you did. Lord, as we go this week, help us to shine your light in this dark world. Lord, to show everyone we interact with what it means to truly be sold out to you. God, we love you. We praise you today. Lord, guide us this week as we live out our faith and shine your light in this dark world. Guide us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.